If you have your Bibles, turn with me to uh, the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. If you were here last week, you heard a little bit of the prophecy um, from the book of Zechariah. It was a prophecy that was given to the Israelites who were coming back to Jerusalem. They had been in exile for 70 years. Zechariah's prophecy was to give them direction on how to live and, and how to love as they return uh, to freedom. Malachi's prophecy, the one that we're gonna look at today, happens about a hundred years after that, a hundred years later. Um, for whatever reason, the Israelites chose not to adhere to the word of God in those hundred years. They chose to hear the words that Zechariah spoke and to ignore them. They said, there's another way, there's a better way. We're going our own way. And God sends the prophet Malachi to speak into their reality of disobedience. The really, really hard thing about this is basically God sends Malachi to the people of Israel because during that time of exile, they didn't change. During that season of exile, there was no okay, now we're gonna, okay, I'm gonna make some changes here. I'm gonna trust, I'm gonna learn, I'm gonna love, I'm gonna act differently, I'm gonna, gonna forgive, I'm gonna receive forgiveness. During those years of exile, there was no change. There was no difference. They were completely disobedient as they returned uh, from exile as they were when God took them into exile. I don't know, uh, just real quick, any of you familiar with exile? Is this a familiar term to any of you? Do you guys know what? Exile is, some of you know. Exile is a place of isolation. It's a place of desolation. Sometimes exile is a place of consequence. Like you did something wrong and you are now been removed from all that you know and you've been placed in this, this place of exile. Or maybe uh, you didn't do anything wrong. Maybe sin just splashed on you. And because sin splashed on you, somehow you were segregated from a safe space or maybe even a sacred space. Some of you know a little bit about exile. In fact, some of you may even be living in exile today. One of the most challenging parts of exile that I've experienced, I think, is the unknown of when it will end. Like if you knew that this season would end in a couple of weeks or a couple of months, or maybe even if you knew that it was gonna end in a couple of years, you might have a little more courage to fight it out. But so many times it seems today that exile just has this unending timeline. If you know anything about exile, you probably know something about deep pain. And you probably know some about fear, and you know something about doubt. You might even know something about hope, about holding tight to the ancient promises, maybe even the ancient practices. If you find yourself in exile today, let me just remind you, if you hear nothing else that I say today, if you find yourself in an exile, let me just remind you that God sees you right where you are, just as you are. God hasn't turned his back on you no matter what you've done or what you become. If you feel like you are in exile today, God is with you in your exile. One of the questions to ask in exile is, what do I learn here? What do you want me to learn here? The people of Israel chose not to learn anything in their exile. And as I said, 
How do I live faithful in this exilic life? How do I create beauty in exile? How might God be using this season to change me and grow me? Well, again, one of the most devastating parts of this book of Malachi, really the primary reason for this prophecy is God's recognition that the people of Israel are just choosing not to obey. And so he sends this prophet exile. Check out, uh, sorry, he sends this prophet Malachi. Uh, Sorry, got backwards there. Uh, So check out the opening couple of words in Malachi, opening couple of verses. It's really a prologue, these first five verses, but it is an anchor for the rest of the book. Malachi chapter one, I'll read through the message paraphrase. A message, God's word to Israel through Malachi. God said, I love you. And you replied, really? How have you loved us? Look at history. This is God's answer. Look at history. Look at how differently I've treated you, Jacob, from Esau. I've loved Esau and hated Jacob. I've reduced pretentious Esau to a molehill, turned his whole country into a ghost town. And when Edom, Esau said, we've been knocked down, but we'll get up and start over. Good as new. God of the angel army said, just try it and see how far you get. When I knock you down, you stay down. People will take one look at you and say, land of evil and the God cursed tribe. Yes, take a good look and then you'll see how faithfully I have loved you. And you'll want even more saying, may God be even greater beyond the borders of Israel. This whole prophecy is founded on the central truth of God's love for you, God's love for me, God's love for his people. And God says it twice in this passage of scripture, I love you, I love you. There's no like, I love you if you do this, this, and this. God knows that they've been disobedient. And yet he says clearly, I love you. I love you. I love you. And those with hardened hearts say, really? (laughs) Oh, really? You love me? Oh, really? How have you loved us? I love the Bible. This is, I don't know if this resonates with any of you guys, but this kind of sounds like some of the life that I've lived I can hear God say, I love you. And I say, and my response is, oh, really? If you love me so much, then why why all this, right? Did any of you ever say that? You hear God say, I love you. And then you go, really? Because if you love me, is this the way it's supposed to go down? Any of you ever do that? Or is this just me? Can I, can I, I got one, I got one hand. I see that hand. I got one hand. Yeah. If you love me, then why have we been in exile so long? Really? If you love me, then why am I still in exile? If you love me, then why didn't you protect me from my oppressors? Why didn't you save me from my enemies? If you love me, then why all of these nights of tossing and turning? If you love me, really? That's kind of the way this little book goes. It's kind of this dialogue back and forth. God makes a statement, sort of, if you will, it's a series of six disputes between God and Israel. God makes a statement. He kind of makes a claim and then Israel are going to disagree with what God says. And then God's going to have the last word. Thank goodness. God always has the last word. Chapters one of two of Malachi, God exposes corruption. And then in chapter three, he's going to confront their corruption. And then the book closes with this beautiful promise. We'll get to it in just a minute in chapter four. So the first dispute, the first of the six was the one we just read. So let's take a look at the rest. The second dispute goes from 
uh, chapter one, verse six into chapter two. Uh, verse six and seven, uh, it's really a dispute over the way that the people of Israel are worshiping God. God, God accuses the people of going through the motions. You might know what that's like sometimes. I know what that's like sometimes, just to go through the motions. And God uses some really heavy language to describe their false worship, this accusation. Verse six and seven. A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? And if I'm a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? And it's you priests, you show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? I don't know if this sounds like an interaction between like a parent and a child. You, know, you say, you did this. And the kid says, how have I done this? This kind of goes back and forth throughout, throughout the whole book. God says, your worship has not honored me. It has disrespected me. And it's not just the worshipers who have shown contempt. It's also the priests. How, they ask, how, how have we done this? And God says, the offerings that you're bringing, the offerings that you're bringing are defiled. The Levitical law is really, really clear as it relates to the offerings that the people of Israel are supposed to bring. Uh, way, way back in the Old Testament, uh, Leviticus chapter 17 Verse two says, tell Aaron the priest and his sons to treat with respect the sacred offerings that the Israelites consecrate to me so they will not profane my holy name. That's the role of the priest. Verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, speak to Aaron and his sons and all the Israelites and say to them, if any of you, whether an Israelite or a foreigner residing in Israel, presents a gift for a burnt offering to the Lord, either to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering, you must present a male without defect from the cattle, sheep or goats in an order that it may be, in order that it may be accepted on your behalf. Do not bring anything with a defect because it will not be accepted on your behalf. When anyone brings from the herd or a flock or fellowship offering to the Lord to fulfill a special vow or as a free will offering, it must be without defect or blemish to be acceptable. Don't profane my holy name for I must be acknowledged as holy by the Israelites. I am the Lord who made you holy and who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. The Israelites would know this. They would know this very thing. And yet it's this that God challenges them. They're bringing less than, they're bringing these sort of defective sacrifices to God. They're choosing a lesser way. Really, they're choosing a cheaper way. They say, how have we despised you? you know, how have we defiled you? And God responds back to them, verse seven, by saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or deceased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now plead with, God to be, plead with God to be gracious to us with such offerings from your hands. Will he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. These guys were bringing offerings that were less than and God calls them out on it. And he says, hey, this is just not okay. If you're coming to worship me, there are these spaces in which I'm inviting you to live fully and truly and wholly and they're coming less than. Here's the third dispute. The people were not being 
uh, faithful to God. They were being unfaithful to God and they were being unfaithful to their wives. This is a long passage, verse 10 down through verse 16, if you have your Bibles. He says, do we not all have one father? Did not one God create all of us? Then why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? This is gonna sound like, uh, uh, the rest of this passage is gonna sound a lot like marriage. It is about marriage, but it's also about the relationships that we have with each other. Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign God. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and you wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And you ask, why, why, why? It's because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant, has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? He seeks godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Scriptures are really clear. God's really strong here. A friend was telling me about spending a couple weeks on a college campus uh, in the winter, early spring. And his role there was to provide some pastoral leadership. And he was telling me that one of the responsibilities was to serve as like a prayer advocate that if there were students that needed someone to pray with, then he had that role. It's kind of like we do every Sunday after, as we get to the end of the gatherings, there's usually a person standing back there by the stairs to serve as a prayer advocate. And many of you have gone and prayed with someone. Well, that was my friend's role uh, at, on this college campus for a couple of weeks. He was there to just pray with people. And he said uh, every single day after the worship gatherings were over, Every single guy that came to him came to confess a problem with pornography. Every single day, every single guy. He said, I waited for that. I waited for that trend to end. I waited for a kid to come and confess something else. But kid after kid, day after day, made this confession about pornography. Some of us are taken into exile and some of us choose exile. Some of us, even in the church, choose self-exile, the exile of pornography, uh, the exile of self-loathing or fear, uh, the exile of social media, the exile of Netflix, the exile of scrolling. We put ourselves in exile when we mindlessly numb ourselves, when we check out, and we check out. God says here, and it does relate to marriage, and it does relate 
to all other areas of our life, he says, be on your guard, be on your guard. Do not be unfaithful. If you find yourself in a place of self-exile and you don't know what to do or where to go, there's folks around here who are willing to join you no matter the place of exile that you've ended up in. So God exposes Israel's corruption, refusing to embrace his message of love, dishonoring God in the way that we worship, and unfaithfulness in relationship with God and with others and in marriage. And in these next three disputes, God's gonna move and confront their rebellion. So uh, this is the fourth dispute, number seven, uh, verse number 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. <laughs> How have we wearied you? Did you hear this back and forth? You have wearied the, word, the Lord with your words. How have we wearied, wearied him, you ask? By saying all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he's pleased with them or saying, where is the God of justice? You ever look around and you say, I know that guy is not a good guy. Then why is it that he has a really, really cool boat? Have you ever looked around and you just like, I know that guy's not doing good. And yet it just seems like he has everything. He's got all the cool stuff. What, what is the deal? Or maybe there's been a time and a place where you just have seen injustice perverted over and over and over again. And you're like, God, what is the deal? What is the deal? Where is the justice? Where? The people of Israel would know Isaiah 61, one of my favorite passages in all of scripture. This is verse eight and nine. For I, the Lord, love justice and I hate robbery and wrongdoing. And in my faithfulness, I'll reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them and their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. And all who see them will acknowledge that they are a people of the Lord who has blessed. He has blessed. You ever ask, when's that gonna happen? Like, when is that going to happen around here? I have a friend that when we get together, he asks me the same question every time. Hey, how much longer before the last becomes first? Well, here's how God responds through Malachi chapter three, verse one. He says, I'll send my messenger who will prepare the way for me and then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Then verse three and four. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the Levites, the priests, and he refine them like gold and silver. And the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. God says a messenger is coming. And when he comes, he will come like fire to purify his people and remove idolatry and sexual immorality and social injustice. And there will be a small little faithful group, a little faithful remnant that will remain. But God turns the tables. Those guys are saying, what about those guys? What about those guys? They're saying to God, what about those guys? And God turns the tables. He goes, what about you guys? What about you guys? What about us guys? Verse five, so I will come to put you on trial. Wow. 
And I will be quick to testify against sorcerers and adulterers and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But they don't fear me, says the Lord Almighty. What about you guys? What about you guys? What about us guys? What about you and me? How we care for the quartet of the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the alien says a great deal about how we care about God. Dispute number five. Uh, if you've grown up in the church, you might be familiar with the book of Malachi. Some of you may be familiar. There's a couple things that the book of Malachi is known for. The first is that it's the last book of the Old Testament. And then there's this season of silence before Jesus comes. But the second thing, if you know about the book of Malachi, you might know that there's a word in here about tithing. So for the next few minutes, we're going to talk about tithing. Isn't that great? <laughs> yeah, uh, you, you, it, the, the only thing that I, when I grew up, the only thing that I knew about Malachi was there was this really strong passage about tithing. So I want you to lean in and hear what God has to say. I, the Lord, uh, do not change. Verse six, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. That's been our theme all summer. Return to me, come back to me, return to me. But you ask, how are we to return? This back and forth is amazing. Return to me. How are we to return? Will a, and God says, God says, verse eight, will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how are we robbing you? <laughs> In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that, there'll be, that, that there will not be room enough to store it. I'll prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord Almighty. And then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. God calls the people to come back to him. They say, how? And God says, you've stopped tithing. The people of Israel neglected this responsibility to care for the temple and over these hundred years, the temple fell into disrepair. And God confronts them saying that he wants to bless them. He wants to bless them with abundance. But he says, you're not being faithful. Tithing was built into the foundation of Israel's way of life. For a person not to tithe was to rob the divine. In the Levitical law, we just read a bunch of the Levitical law a few moments ago. In the Levitical law, there is this couple of lines about, a lot of lines about tithing, but here's just one. Leviticus 27, 30. A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. The word tithe there, it just means a tenth part, tithing 10%. And the reality is for Israel, the 10%, the tenth was really only a start. I know that some of you might be feeling a little bit uncomfortable now. Anytime we talk about tithing in the church, it gets just a little bit nervous. Anytime we talk about money, it evokes a 
deep emotional response. I, I know that, it's true for me. John Ortberg says this, God invites human beings into an experiment. He challenges people to test it. At the same time, failure to tithe is called robbery. Tithing is not the last word in generosity. It's the first word. But it's a word that God takes with deep seriousness. Perhaps because when human beings get vague around finances, they grow deeply evasive. I've shared this with you before. For Christy and I, we've practiced storehouse, storehouse tithing. Uh, as long as we've been married, we've taught our girls to give. We say, listen, girls, God only asks for 10% and you get to do whatever you want with the rest. You get nine out of $10 to do whatever you want. But that first dollar, that first dollar comes back to the storehouse. These are our tithes. And then there are our offerings. Our offerings are above and beyond the tithe. We give to the Salvation Army. We give to Campus Crusade, to kids on the mission field. We give to other ministries. We give to ministries around here. We give to the seed offering. I'd like to encourage every single one of you to tithe. To just take a step toward a tithe. Maybe your finances are so crazy. Uh, maybe it's just such a mess. You think 10%, there's no way. Then I would just say, take a step. Make a start. Do what you can. Don't get lost about the amount. It's not about the amount. It's not about religion. It's, it's about the motive of the heart. Invariably, whenever we talk about tithing and we talk about it from the Old Testament, somebody will come up to me afterwards and they'll say, hey, that's Old Testament law. We don't live under the Old Testament anymore. We're not bound to that law anymore. And I always say the same thing. The Old Testament says 10%. The New Testament says you give your life, your whole life. There is inherent blessing in doing life God's way. We all know that. There is inherent blessing in tithing. If you wanna talk more about it, I would love to talk more about it with you. The person sitting next to you would love to talk with you about tithing. I'm so sure. Can I get an amen? <laughs> amen, all right, good deal. And listen, I don't say this because it will help me. I say this because it will help you. I was thinking about exile if there ever is a place where the temptation not to tithe would be at its greatest, it would be when you're in exile. You're in a place where you don't wanna be. You might even be with people that you don't wanna necessarily be with or you don't even like them. And yet you have this call to be faithful. And with all things money here, for a lot of us, it's money that we hold on to in exile. We think it's the only thing we can hold on to. It's the only thing we can control. I can control what I do with this. In exile, we probably feel like we have little control. The, at least the least thing we can do is control our money. And that is a really dangerous place to be. Well, the final dispute is a bit like one of the other disputes earlier. Evil people are getting all the good stuff and we're left here with not so much and the people start to say to God, the people start to say, it's pointless to follow you. Like, what's the point? So if you have your Bibles, this is verse 13 through 15. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. And yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said, it is futile to serve God. You have said, 
what do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper. And even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. And God's response is huge. This is really crazy. Instead of responding with sort of a direct response, he tells just this quick story of this remnant of people, this remnant of faithful people who are living the way that God's called them to live. This is verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord, they talked with each other. Oh, I love this. Then those who feared the Lord, they talked to each other. And the Lord listened and he heard and a scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. I'm gonna write a story about these guys. On that day, when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. This little group of people, this little faithful group of people, he says, I'm gonna write a story about them, a scroll of remembrance. I think what Malachi's doing here is he's reflecting on the gift of scripture, this compilation of books that will become the Old Testament, this scripture that points to the past to remember what God has done in order to inspire faithfulness and hope for the future. I mentioned that uh, this book, uh, Malachi, it's the last book of the Old Testament. Then there will be 400 years of silence before the coming of Jesus. In my mind, exile and silence kind of go together. Not sure if there's anything harder than God's perceived silence. But the reality is God is never silent. He is always speaking And he's saying here to Israel, to you and me, I think, I have given you my word. You have my word. You have the word. You have my word. Yes, there's gonna be challenges with money. Yes, there's gonna be challenges in the church. Yes, there's gonna be oppressors. Yes, there may even be challenges in your marriage, but I have given you my word to show you how to navigate even the most painful seasons of life and death. And then the prophecy ends with this prophetic reference to the day of the Lord. And here it refers to the coming of the Messiah. You gotta hear this. Malachi chapter four, verses four and five, and then we'll go back up to verse two, but verse four and five, remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all of Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Verse five, uh, excuse me, verse six, he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of children back to their parents or I will come to strike the land with total destruction. What a powerful promise. Hearts will be turned back to one another, parents to their children and children to their parents. I can think of no greater exile than to be disconnected from my kids or my kids disconnected, exiled from me. I think in part because I know just a little bit of that pain. My brother went into exile for a couple years. 
Uh, for a couple years, we had no idea where he was. For a couple years, my dad had no idea where he was. I think I've told you this story. My dad went to bed every night and made sure the door was unlocked in hopes that one night my brother would walk through that door. We had no idea. A couple years went by. We had no idea. The sleepless nights, the anxiety. Some of you know. Some of you know that kind of exile. And if you're in that space right now, golly, know that God is with you. God has not forgotten about you. God says here, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll turn. My dad held fast to that promise and God did it. In exile, my brother learned that he needed his family and he needed rehab. In exile, I learned that I just need my brother. And my relationship with my brother is one of the most important relationships in my life. What have you learned in exile? What might God want you to learn in the here and now? Right where you are, just as you are. This is verse two, last verse. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. The prophecy begins by God saying, I love you. And it ends by saying, for you, those who reveal, revere my name, I will heal you. I will heal you. Oh, really? Yes, really. May his healing rays minister to your hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.